So if you have a Bible with you, there are also Bibles at the the back of the church. So we're in Exodus, we're in the book of Exodus, second book of Moses, and we've come to chapter 6. We've been looking at Exodus in our morning services. Last week uh, we were in Exodus 5, and we're now headed into Exodus 6. It's good that I can count. And Moses had been sent by the Lord after 40 years in Midian to go back to Egypt so that he might go into Pharaoh and say, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Moses and Aaron went in and they gave the order from the Lord. But Pharaoh, stubborn of heart, refused. And then this great plan of deliverance seemed to be taking a step backwards. Because things for the Israelites under slavery went from bad to worse. And Pharaoh, he was thinking that this was just a ruse to try and get them to have a three days holiday from work. And they were too lazy to work for him. They said, well, from now on, you have, yes, you still have to make the same number of bricks. You have the same quota for bricks. But you're no longer going to have the straw, which basically makes it almost virtually impossible to do what they've been asked to do. So the people were upset with the foremen. The foremen were upset with Moses and Aaron. And the people were saying, what have you done? What have you done? You came as a great deliverer. And instead you made things worse. We were slaves under oppression. And now it's even worse. What have you done? And then even Moses began to thought, think, oh, not, not, not such a brilliant idea after all. And, but say what you like about Moses, and we can give Moses a pretty bad press. At least in his complaint, he turned to the Lord, rather than against the Lord. And I thought that that was just a great reminder when we have hurt, when we have pain, when we have questions, when we have lamentations, when we have complaints. Turn to the Lord, not against the Lord. But Moses is upset. And Moses in chapter 5 had two questions for the Lord and one complaint. And the two questions were, why have you done this and made things worse for the people? And why did you send me? It's a fairly common complaint for Moses. Why did you send me? Sorry, and one complaint was, Lord, since I've come here, Pharaoh's made things worse. And you haven't made anything better. And I imagine that, if we're honest, most of us have come to the Lord with questions like that before. Even with a complaint like that before. Have you ever cried out to God? Have you ever cried out to God? Maybe you wouldn't do it verbally because you wouldn't want to be thought bad of. But maybe in your spirit, God, why? Why is there no end to this? It could be as even as simple as being able to sleep at night. And if you can't sleep, that's a terrible thing. It is. Or maybe you're single. Lord, why would you do this? I want to be married. I want to be a good husband. I want to be a good wife. I'm not asking for a bad thing. Or you want to have children. Lord, why would you not bless me with a child? Or maybe you have problems with your children as they grow up. Lord, why would you do this? We're not perfect, I know, but we prayed and we took them to church. We read the Bible to them. We tried to do the best we can. Or maybe you're sick 
And nobody sees the trouble that it takes just to get out of bed. To get out of bed at night if you need to get up. I was speaking to somebody yesterday who has to wake up continually to help his wife get out of bed because she's in pain. And you keep praying, Lord, why do I not get better? Or maybe you have a temptation and the temptation is still there after all the, these years. Lord, I believe in you. I want to serve you. Why is this still there? Or have you ever come to the Lord and said, why did you send me here? Why here, Lord? Maybe at school. Why did you send me? It's so hard at school these days. Why do I have to be here? Or maybe the job that you're in. God, why don't things get better? Why did you allow me to take this part? Lord, why did you send me into this marriage? It certainly isn't what I expected. Or Lord, why did you give me these children to parent? It's far more difficult than I ever imagined. I'm not speaking about my kids, so don't complain afterwards. Um, what are you doing? Why are you sending me? Have you ever come to God with a complaint like Moses? Lord, I'm trying to do the right thing. And you're not, and you're not doing your part. That's, that's the raw honesty of what Moses is feeling like. You sent me, I listened, I'm here, I did everything you said, told me to do. You're not keeping your end of the bargain. And that was Moses' complaint, and it may well be your complaint. So what does God say? What does God say? And that's what we're going to get to. We'll pray before we read God's word. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So Exodus 6 and verse 1, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I shall do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by him I name the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, and I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. And Moses spoke thus, the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. And may the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. So you see the introductory statement in verse 1 where the Lord says to Moses, Moses, I know you're worried, but let me reiterate, this will not fail. Not only will it not fail, if you read verse 1, but Pharaoh will send them out 
with a strong arm. He will want to get rid of you. But then verses 2 to 8 is the argument. Verses 2 to 8 is the argument. And God has something to say to Moses. And God has something to say to the Israelites through Moses, which are the two halves we're going to look at. So the big idea is in verses 2, 6 and 8. It's repeated three times. You can see it. I am the Lord. Capital letters. I am the Lord, which is I am Jehovah. I am Yahweh. And that's the most important part of his reply. It's the fundamental issue of the book of Exodus. Who is the Lord? I am the Lord. One of the best commentaries I have on Exodus is the God who would be made known. So your need, everyone's need, is to know who is the Lord. Because if they would know who the Lord is, it would answer Moses' questions, it would respond to Moses' complaints. If they could simply and marvellously know the one to whom they're complaining. But they do not quite know yet. But knowing would make all the difference. And that's what parents want to communicate to their children. But in their pain, in their anger, in their complaints, in their suffering, you want to look them in the eye and say, I am your father, I am your mother. Now what does that mean? Well, on the face of it, you might say, I know that. I've known my whole life that you're my father, you're my mother. But what do you mean? Well, look at me. I'm your dad. I've taken care of you. You do not know what I have sacrificed to love you, to feed you, to clothe you. And I love you, love you more than you possibly ever fathom. You realise this when you have children. As much as you love your father and mother, you have no idea how much they loved you. And so in saying those words, I am your dad, I am your mum, you're saying, I love you so much. I know what I'm doing. I only want what is best for you. Would you please trust me? I am your dad. It's incredibly important parents today love their children enough to tell them the truth. To lead them in the ways of the Lord. It'll be hard. It'll go against the grain. But you couldn't love your children any more than to tell them the truth about God and the world. But all of that is wrapped up in this single statement, I am the Lord. And he begins that phrase in verse 2. He begins in verse 6, the speech of the Israelites with the same statement. And at the end of verse 8, reissuing the statement of self-identification. That was their need, and that is our fundamental need. We need to know the Lord, not casually, not just know a few things about him, because if you know him, you will be changed. If you really know him, you will be changed. If you read in the Bible, no one ever comes from a real encounter with the living God unaffected. It may not immediately lead to faith. They may be cowering in fear. But no one comes to the encounter with the Lord and leaves unaffected. They needed to know, we need to know, who is the Lord. So first of all, God addresses Moses, the first half. And God, said, God says four things to Moses. And he's looking backwards. Four things I have done for you and the people. Let me tell you four things. I appeared, I established, I have heard, 
and I have remembered. I appeared, verse 3, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, and by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I appeared to your fathers. I knew them. I was their God. And then you have this line, which has caused a lot of ink over the years for scholars at the end of verse 3. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. The difficulty is, Lord there is in capital letters. It's an important thing. We've looked at that already more than once as we've gone through Exodus. The Lord in capital letters is the divine name. I am who I am, Yahweh Jehovah. And that's what's been translated here, the Lord, the divine name. But the difficulty is Yahweh occurs more than a hundred times in Genesis. So if you have a Bible software, if you wanted to search, you'll see the Lord in capital letters appears a hundred times, more than a hundred times in Genesis. If you look at Genesis 4 verse 26, just as an example, at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord, but Jehovah, Yahweh. So how can it be that for more than a hundred times in Genesis we have the Lord, and from Genesis 4 on people called on the name of the Lord, but Exodus 6 verse 3 says they did not know him as the Lord. Or liberal German scholars a century ago, because of this verse, thought that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, couldn't have been written by Moses, but were written by four different scholars. So there was an author who we, if you want to like, called the Yahwist or the Jehovahist. And when he writes, he uses the Lord in capital letters. And then there's another author who's called the, let's call him the Elohimist, because that's a word for God's. And he doesn't use the word Lord, but he uses the word Elohim. And then there's a priestly author, and then there's a, the one who wrote Deuteronomy. So you've got the liberal scholars who said that four people wrote the first five books of the Bible. And they said Moses didn't write it. And there was one strand of tradition that said they didn't know the Lord. There was another strand that said that they did. And they tried to patch it all up together. That's when people are educated beyond their intelligence and they delve into the word of the Lord and end up in a right old pickle. But you know, even liberal Christians say that this is speculative. They agree that they had a speculation. So how do we understand a hundred times in Genesis we have the Lord and in verse 3 it says they did not know the name of the Lord. The best explanation is though they knew the name of the Lord, they did not know the identity of the Lord. They knew the title, Yahweh. But this is, well, this is the point I want to get over. This is a turning point in God revealing himself. The Exodus is the Lord who would be known. And this is a turning point when they will understand what does it mean that Yahweh is the Lord. Exodus, the God who makes himself known. He did not need to develop in any way, but their understanding was deficient. They knew the name, but now something would change. And they will learn something which is so fundamental about the Lord, they had not known before. They had known him as God Almighty. There's a little footnote in, if you've got an ESV, if you want to run that home, if you want to run that and track that down, it is the Hebrew word which you may be familiar with, El Shaddai. They knew him as God Almighty, El Shaddai. 
In Latin, it is omnipotent, the omnipotent one. In Greek, it is pantocratio, which means the all-powerful. But the best explanation of the Hebrew is that it means the one of the mountains. The one of the mountains, El Shaddai, the almighty strong one. They knew God as El Shaddai, the strong sovereign Lord. But what they did not know was that the sovereign Lord was their redeemer. They knew, they knew the name of the Lord, almighty, mighty one, maker, creator. But they did not yet know him as redeemer. And it, so the, the full knowledge of the name had eluded them. An understanding of what it means to say the Lord. So what is new in verse 3 is the revelation that God is saviour. That the Lord sees and hears and has purpose to, purpose to deliver them. I appear to your fathers and now even more have I appeared to you, Moses. I appeared. Secondly, I established my covenant. In other words, I made promises. I have a plan. Do you know that God has a plan? Do you believe that God has a plan? Have you ever been driving or riding with someone who has no idea where they're going? Um, and e I can promise you this, that even Tom Tom sends you down roads that have no business being called roads. It cost me £400 in having a car delivered from a field. But some of us men never want to admit that we have no idea where we're going. It's a men thing, by the way. And how to get where we're going. We will never admit I'm lost. You're walking aimlessly around London and you know, your wife says, are you lost? No, 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 I know where I am. You know. So we fake it. You fake it. You have no idea where you're going. They're driving and trying to look at their phone and they do not know where they're going. I've never done that, by the way, in case the police are listening. But um, Some of us, although we would not admit it, deep down think that with God. That we're in the passenger seat while we're watching God have no idea where he's taking us. And we're, kind of, we're trying to be patient with God as it takes another wrong turn. And he takes us through some backwards. And all of a sudden, we end up where we were going. And God, what are you doing? We don't know how to drive, but he does, number one. I established my covenant. I have a plan. I have made promises. The third thing God says to Moses is, I have heard. So beautiful. I have heard. I am listening, Moses. I'm not ignoring you. And we saw this in chapter 2. The importance of God simply hearing your distress. It makes all the difference, my friend. When, you know, when you're talking and your friend looks you in the eye and engages, it's listening. It takes all the difference when the doctor takes time to ask questions. What exactly does that feel like? It's listening and writing down, he hears you. It makes all the difference when your spouse for two minutes will put down the phone and not multitask anymore. That's for me, by the way. Just, but just to listen and to hear. And God says to Moses, I know you cannot see me, but I am listening. I hear you. I appeared, I established, I am listening. And he says, I have remembered. 
In verse 5, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel and I have remembered my covenant. God has not forgotten what he has promised. As much of what we read at the end of chapter 2 has been reiterated, except God is making sure that Moses understands. At the end of chapter 2, God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And at that point, it was the narration of what was going on behind the scenes and who is writing this. But how did Moses know that God knew, God heard, God saw, God remembered? How could Moses write Exodus 2? Because in Exodus 6, God tells him. I've been listening. I have not forgotten. God is not helpless. God is not too busy. He is not too small. He is not indifferent. He is not surprised by your suffering. He is not rolling his eyes at you. He is the Lord. So the first thing that God does is says to Moses, I have something to say to you. I am the Lord. I appeared. I established. I heard. I remembered. I am the Lord. And then in verse 6, he transitions. Not only have I something to say to you, but I have something to say through you. And these are a beautiful few verses. There are beautiful few verses. I'd love you to love Exodus 6, 1 to 9 as much as I do. Because these are verses that speak of God's great plan of salvation. Of God's great plan of redemption. Because with Moses, God looks to the past and says, I'll tell you four things that I have done. But with Israel, God looks to the future and says, let me tell you seven things that I'm going to do. They're called the seven promises of salvation. Number one, I will bring you out from, from the burdens of the Egyptians. Number two, I will deliver you from slavery. Number three, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Number four, I will take you to be my people. Number five, I will be your God. And number six, I will bring you into the promised land. And number seven, I will give it to you for a possession. Piling up promise after promise, seven of them. I will take you to be my people. And just like Boaz needed to wait for the nearest kinsman redeemer to step down so he might become the kinsman redeemer and save Ruth, the Lord says, I will make you my people. I will draw near to you so that I might be your kinsman redeemer and I will give you the land. Not just that you will be in it. You see, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob were in the promised land, but they were sojourners. And he said, I'm going to give you the land. They hadn't owned anything apart from a little cave. One of my favourite <coughs> chapters in Genesis is Genesis 23. Remember that curious story there. And you wonder, why are we spending a whole chapter to talk about Sarah having died and they're buying a tomb for her and all of the protracted negotiations? It sounds like an estate agent's chartered Abraham in Genesis 23. But then at the end you've got the cave of Machapila and the bartering that they do to buy a cave. But it signified their faith. Their faith in the promise. That we'll buy a little cave. We'll buy a little burial site. Because we believe in the promise of God. And one day, one day, the land will be ours. 
All they ever owned was a little cave, and God says, that's all going to change. What liberating, freeing, rescuing, adopting, loving, lavishing good news. That God says, I'm going to give you a better possession and an abiding one, an eternal one. We just looked at those seven promises that God makes through Moses to his people. I want you to think of how much greater the promises of Christ are to us. Number one, just look at the first one. I will bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians to the Israelites. I will bring you out from your burdens. And Jesus says to us, my yoke is easy and my burdens are light. Number two, I will deliver you from slavery. I will deliver you from slavery, Israel, to the Egyptians. Hebrews 2, verse 15. I, Jesus, will deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There's no slavery like the slavery of sin. Three, the promise of God through Moses to the Israelites, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And Jesus says, I will redeem you from the power the penalty of sin because I gave my life as the ransom for sinners. Number four, I will take you to be my people. Ephesians 2 verse 12, I will bring you near to me. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Number five, I will be your God. I will be your God and Revelation 21, verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Number six, I will bring you into the promised land. And we hear the words of Jesus in John 14 in the upper room, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back. And take you to myself. And verse the chap and the promise seven, through Moses to the Israelites, I will give it to you for a possession. And Jesus in Matthew twenty five verse thirty four says, The king shall say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Our God loves to make promises. And as his people, we struggle to believe them. But hear that promise from Jesus. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's the greatness of what God has done. That's the greatness of what God promised us through Jesus. But do you see what happens in verse 9? Verse 9 is a remarkable verse. It's sad tender, realistic. You see, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, because we've had the main point in 2 to 8, we had the beginning which kind of set the scene, and then, then this verse 9, God spoke thus to the people of Israel. So all those seven promises of redemption, of grace, of freedom, the new land, they would be his people. Seven amazing promises, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. Um, if you have one commentary that I encourage you to read on Exodus, it is Philip Reichen's commentary 
in the Preaching the Word series. But in there he speaks about the I wills, the I wills of salvation lead to a I will not from God's people. The seven I wills of salvation, I will, lead to the I will nots of God's people. God says, I will, I will, I will, seven times. And God's people say, I will not. I will not believe you. And they couldn't bear the promises of God because of their pain. They couldn't see through their suffering. You could translate the Hebrew literally. that They couldn't listen because of the shortness of breath. They were panting. They were out of breath. And as Philip Reichen says, demoralisation brought on by exhaustion. It, does, does that describe you this morning in your heart? Demoralisation brought on by exhaustion. Is that what you're feeling? Too tired, too hurt, too burdened to believe God's promises. The Bible says that they were discouraged. Their spirits were broken. So broken they couldn't hear the promise of deliverance. What kept them in bondage was their bondage. And sin has that same bondage on us. The history of Israel and Egypt teaches the way of salvation, which begins by acknowledging that apart from the saving work of the Spirit of God, we are slaves to sin. We are dead in sin. We're not just a little bit unwell, we are dead. Don't listen to anyone who says you're inherently a good person. You are not. We're born in sin. And no matter how much we try and stop sinning, we always keep on sinning. And many times we repeat the same sins over and over and over again. And we try and escape by doing a little bit hard, trying harder to do better. But the next thing is, boom, we're back in it. And the sinner gets so oppressed by sin that there seems to be no escape. And the bonds of sin are so tight that they prevent the sinner from hearing the good news of the gospel. If you know your theology, this is the doctrine of total inability, which means that sinners cannot come to God on their own. We cannot save ourselves because salvation belongs to the Lord. And this was illustrated by the Israelites who wouldn't listen to that promise of freedom precisely because they were enslaved. And one of the implications of that doctrine is the only way that we can ever come to Christ is by his intervention. God himself breaks the chains of sin and by his Holy Spirit who opens our hearts and minds to hear the gospel. So it's all too human that we turn the I wills of God's salvation into the I will not of unbelief. But when you're tempted to say, I will not, step back and get a clearer picture of our God. And this is what God is trying to do for Moses and the Israelites and for us. And that's why three times he says, I am the Lord. If you knew me, you would trust me. If you could begin to grasp all that it means, that I am the Lord. And maybe a lot, of, a lot of us are like the Israelites were in verse 3. We know God. We know him as God Almighty. We know something about God. We know truths about God. 
We even have a kind of relationship with God, but it's incomplete. And maybe you know God in your head, and you have good theology to be God is strong, powerful, mighty, sovereign. But you're struggling to believe and know that he is strong and powerful and mighty and sovereign for you. His child. You do not yet know him or struggling to experience him as maker, defender, redeemer and friend. <coughs> Brothers and sisters, my dear friends, God has promised us everything in Christ. He really has. You see, Abraham, he knew the Lord as a promise maker. Moses knew him as a promise keeper. But we know the one in whom all the promises are yes and amen. Just think of Romans 8, those precious words of the Apostle Paul. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's my mother's final words. There is no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you're in Christ, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. And in Christ, we did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but a spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And in Christ, in Christ, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. And in Christ we know, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For I am sure, are you sure, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because all the promises are yes and amen in Christ. So think of all the prophecies of the Old Testament that find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. All the promises that the people were waiting for and did not see. All the fulfilment that they were longing for, hoping for, waiting for, in one day would be realised in the one born in the seed of the woman. The one who would crush the head of the serpent. The one would be, who would be Abraham's offspring. The one who was descended from the tribe of Judah. The heir to the throne of David. He was born of a virgin. He was born in Bethlehem. He was preceded by the messenger of the covenant. He was a prophet like Moses. He was a priest like Melchizedek. He was a king like David. And as the prophecy said, he entered into Jerusalem on a donkey. He was betrayed by his friends. He was sold for 30 pieces of silver. He was accused by false witnesses. Isaiah says he was stricken, smitten and afflicted. He was hated without cause. He was crucified with the transgressors. He was buried with the rich in his death, by the rich in his death. He was given vinegar and gall to drink. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was wounded for our iniquities. Not one of his bones was broken. He was buried in a tomb and he rose again the third day. And all of what I just said are, prophet, are, are promises. They're prophecies, they're promises. And all one day were realised because God remembered. 
You see, Moses had so much more good, good, good news coming than he could fathom. And friends, if we could only lift up our eyes, we have much more good news coming than you can fathom. Do not be defined by 2023. The people out there, they know nothing. They absolutely know nothing. Almighty God reigns. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no tongue can recite the good things that God has done for those who love him. He remembered his covenant in Exodus. He remembered his covenant on that night when he was born. And he remembered his covenant on resurrection morning. And he will remember his covenant to you. I want you to remember this this morning. That every I will of divine promise, which was met with I will not, ends up with the I did. The I did of gospel deliverance. Every I will ended up with I did. Oh, what a saviour is Jesus the Lord. God has not forgotten who you are. Let us never forget who he is. May the Lord bless the word for his glory and our eternal good. Amen.